This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Guardian Australia reporter Luc-Henrique Gomez joined me to talk about the latest in welfare and social policy, including the federal government's response to the COVID-19 unemployment crisis. Then, American naturalist and author Cy Montgomery spoke to me about her lifelong relationship with animals including her adventures with the fascinating and highly intelligent invertebrate, the octopus. We discussed two of her books, How to Be a Good Creature and The Soul of an Octopus, a surprising exploration into the wonder of consciousness. Then, finally, Dr Emma Shortis, a research fellow at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT, joined me to talk about the latest in US politics, including the mounting coronavirus death toll in America, which has now reached 81,000. So I welcome now via Skype Luke, who is joining me from, I'm presuming, his home. Hi there, Luke. How are you, Amy? Yeah, I am uh, I am at home working from home, which... Uh... I'm personally quite enjoying, to be honest. How are you? <laughs> Same. Yeah, I've got to say that's it is a nice um, thing. I'm good, thank you. One of the great parts about it is the lack of commuting, which I think is really nice for people. Yeah, I think the. Um, I will admit to waking up quite uh, late uh, relative to the time I start work, which is not something I can normally do. So that is. No. Been adding at least an hour of sleep to my day, which I, I am enjoying. Winner. That's a that's a great benefit out of a uh, kind of really difficult situation. And um, Luke, I know we've discussed so many of these topics in the past, which have become even more urgent and relevant right now. Um, we haven't had a chance to chat really since um, all of this has been happening. And uh, there's been a huge amount of developments in this space, which is why I was very um, glad to be able to utilise your expertise, given that you report on this uh, specific round and are covering it in a great amount of detail, which I've mentioned before in our previous chat. So if anyone wants some background on what we've discussed before, they can go back through uh, the archives. But let's get into the current situation that we find ourselves in. One of the issues that had come up before that was particularly interesting and we discussed um, some of the people's testimony was the Senate inquiry that was running into unemployment benefits, which uh, used to be called New Start and now it's called Job Seeker. And um, that was a really important uh inquiry in in the sense of gathering evidence and understanding how things are currently working and not working for people who are receiving that um, payment and, of course, the the relevant minor supplementary payments um, prior to the coronavirus pandemic. Could you share with us um, what the results of that Senate inquiry were? Because I believe that the kind of report was handed down about a week and a bit ago. Yeah, that's right. So, um the report, um, which, as you say, was um, a fair—it's a fairly uh, important inquiry because, um, unlike um, you know perhaps other Senate inquiries, this was a unique one in the sense that people who were on what's now known as the Job Seeker Payment um, presented um, gave evidence in these kind of sessions that they had across the country, where they'd be invited to to speak about their lived experience. Um, 
anyway, to answer your question directly, um, what, um, the most, I suppose, um, the key recommendation, I suppose, was that, uh, the, that the committee would like to see new start or job seeker increased. They didn't give a figure um, and uh, they basically said that it should be increased so that nobody who lives uh, in po nobody should live in poverty. Um, aside from that, there were recommendations that Australia um, have a uh, official measure or marker of poverty, which uh, perhaps might surprise some listeners um, to find out that we don't have any way of officially measuring poverty. There are various markers that are used by academics and that are referred to by the government departments, but we don't have a sort of a way of um, determining who lives in poverty, um, which I guess is sort of accepted by the government. Um, so that was another thing that the, the committee uh, identified. There were a, a whole um, list of different uh, recommendations um, that sort of go to um, certain changes that could be made to the social security system. But the, the other main point, I guess, was that they would like a government-led review of social security, which would uh, be the body which would determine what uh, increase uh, would be made to the payment. Um, I don't know, we, we might get into this, uh, the sort of politics of it a, a bit later, but um, the I guess the... Uh, Another point that's worth making is that uh, this was a, uh, a Senate inquiry that had a majority of Labor and Greens, um, or a Labor-Greens majority, uh, so it wasn't controlled by the Coalition, who had their own dissenting recommendations, which were um, basically, uh, they basically said that they didn't really support the recommendations of the committee at all. Um, and I guess the other point that listeners might be confused about that is why wasn't there a, a figure um, given um, in terms of how much New Start should be increased by? Uh, my suspicion or um, uh, assumption, uh, I guess, would be that uh, that's because uh, the Labor Party uh, doesn't have a position um, and its position is essentially that the government should determine that. And so I suspect that was the reason why that was reflected in uh, the recommendations of the inquiry. Yes, you uh, took the words out of my mouth, so I'm glad you brought that up. And, um, of course, we often do see that there's a majority report and a dissenting report. It's very rare that um, everyone's on the same page and there's just one report. I was wondering whether the government, um, in their dissenting report, made comments about whether they wanted things to um, really just be the status quo, or did they make any comments about any of the evidence that was presented and um, and kind of admit that there were potentially flaws in the system or areas or room for improvement? Um, I mean, to be honest, there, there was not a lot of, and, and I mean, this is, you know, slightly uh, my, let's call it my analysis of what they had to say, but I mean, there wasn't a lot of engagement with the recommendations or the material that was in the report itself. It was kind of its own document, which um, made its own points. Uh, the main points that they had to make essentially were that um, they, they, if we think about New Start or the, the main question about New Start or, or job seeker payment as, as the rate of the payment, their, their argument, which is what we heard throughout the inquiry, was um, our system and um, is um, different to a lot of the other systems in the world where um, the payment might be higher. And the reason for that is because our um, job seeker payment, unemployment benefit, is paid um, 
there's no time limit on it and also because um, it's it's paid through uh, taxes, whereas other um, countries, particularly in Europe, who have higher unemployment benefit um, schemes, um, those are often insurance-based schemes. And so their point basically was, the government's point is, well, you know, our system is different, so you shouldn't compare it um to you know a, another country where the rate might be higher they didn't engage with the core question uh, of uh you know how can people be expected to to live on you know what was 40 dollars a day there wasn't much to, uh, discussion about that um there was uh discussion about um i guess the 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 budget and uh, there was a line there in there basically saying well, look, um, if we were to increase or make any changes to Newstart, that would have to come at the, uh, you know, um, th that would have to be coupled with either a tax increase or, 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 or cuts to um, government services or government spending. Um, but no, I mean, generally it was a kind of blanket, we don't support what's been uh, uh, recommended here um, and here is our position on, I guess, the state of the social security system in Australia. Mm. It's interesting that they w were kind of deflecting the issues that naturally come up, which is that the rate, as you said, is not enough to live on. And it's also not enough, um, as many experts have stated, to provide a kind of underlying social and financial security that gives people who are out of work the um, confidence and I guess also the absence of extreme stress to be able to then co confidently go out and look for jobs and to feel adequately supported and not under that extreme duress and pressure um, that so many job seekers find themselves under um, applying for 20 jobs a month. And uh, certainly, as others have stated, if an economy isn't providing the number of jobs um, that necessarily need to be there for people to be employed, um, then putting the kind of onus back on the job seeker uh, puts them under that extreme pressure. What are your thoughts around that and um, whether the government has addressed that at all? Uh, well, I mean, uh, that no, I mean, they haven't really addressed that um, problem uh, and I mean, if you anybody who's been following this issue, um, uh, I guess can sort of, uh, if you pass the rhetoric um, uh, that um, I guess is um, accompanies this discussion, um, the point is always that the the best form of welfare is a job. Um, I think the Prime Minister Scott Morrison yesterday said that um, you know we do people don't need won't need income support if they're in work, which is um, obviously. <laughs> correct but um in the real world uh, uh there is unemployment people are out of work um and, and so they do need an adequate um safety net or um, adequate um payment um to to be able to make um ends meet uh, you know you, you raised i guess the, the question of whether or not there are enough jobs um before the um pandemic hit there were not enough jobs for people um the the uh, um, statistics consistently show that um, there are more um, people looking for work than there are um, advertised jobs. And, um, um, you know, I, I'm not the best person to explain this, but um, economists will tell you that, um, you know, there is a sort of um, the way that the economy is set up is essentially so that there is some um, uh, unemployment in order to make sure that inflation 
uh, doesn't get out of control. So acknowledging all those things and I guess the, the central point, which is that there are always going to be people unemployed, um, uh, you then you therefore then have to engage with the, the key question of to, do people who are on unemployment benefits receive enough money in order to, one, get a job or support themselves uh, to do the things that will require, allow them to, um, you know, uh, successfully or, 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 or effectively look for work? And, and B, I guess the sort of moral question of, you know, do people receive enough money in order to live a life of dignity? Um, uh, at, at this point, um, I don't think either that neither of those two questions um, have been engaged with uh, properly uh, or we haven't come to a solution on, on that. Mm. Um, on Friday, the Prime Minister gave a press conference with the Chief Medical Officer, Brendan Murphy, and um, I guess I had the unfortunate privilege of watching it until the end. And there were <laughs> journalists obviously asking questions, and I'm not sure which journalist did ask this question because I couldn't identify them um, visually, but they did ask a question and they said, can you give the 5 million people on JobKeeper and all those on JobSeeker with the Corona supplement the certainty that they'll get um, that they'll get that for at least the next six months or the six months that the programs have been intended and legislated for. And the Prime Minister responded, I give them the certainty that I want them to be back in their jobs where they don't need it. That's what we want. I mean, people don't want to be on JobKeeper and JobSeeker. They want to be in a job that's paying them. And that's why this is that's what this plan is about. It's not to keep people on income support from the taxpayer, but to have a wage that's provided by business that's successful and earning again and going forward and creating a strong economy. Um, this is, you know, a little bit frustrating when I heard that because, of course, uh, to suggest that anyone wants to be out of a job, that it's, it's kind of what he's implying. And I found it really problematic to have that... Um, that set up, that false kind of argument set up, the dichotomy that you're either on welfare or you're successful and you're earning and, you know, you're, you're part of the economy so you're a productive citizen and that's how we're measuring a citizen's worth. And this whole coronavirus uh, pandemic and the uh, Prime Minister and, and Josh Frydenberg, the Treasurer, have been quite fixated upon opening up the economy. And, of course, the economy is still running, although it's very much running much lower um, and there are huge amounts of restrictions on it. But I, I wonder about the use of language and the way that there's already, I mean, previously it seemed like arguments had been left aside for a brief number of weeks when the job seeker and job keeper payments uh, were announced and, you know, there was more understanding of people's stress and you saw the lines and queues outside of Centrelinks and people were um, a lot more empathetic. And now mm. it seems like we are returning to these very old tropes that are very much relied upon by the coalition government around setting up this um, dichotomy, setting up this um, adversarial type of situation between those who are working and paying tax and those who aren't. What are your thoughts mm -hmm. on that language and that kind of shift that we've seen in the government's messaging? Um, I think uh, the main uh, point I'd like to make is that um, however effective and, um, and, you know, I'm clearly not uh, sympathetic to that kind of rhetoric uh, generally or, or now, but however effective it might have been before the pandemic, I, I do wonder how um, how effective it will be now or in the coming weeks and months 
gaps when, as you know, the RBA says or, or forecasts, we probably will hit 10% unemployment uh, next month or I think it's next month or July. And then by Christmas, you know, the forecast was it would only fall to 9% and we might not get back down to 5% in, in a few years. So, um, you know, whether or not um, you uh, support that sort of rhetoric, I think if you have, you know, 10% unemployment, I think there are going to be a lot of people who, you know, and I don't like this cliche, but a lot of people who you, you weren't out of work before and, and perhaps haven't, experienced much unemployment who will be saying well hang on uh, like and it, uh, hopefully it gives those people a, a sort of um, a, a sense of what um, what happens to people who do um, get uh, into a bit of trouble uh, in, and out, out of work and, and the, the situations that they find themselves in the hoops they have to jump through the uh, lack of money that they are um, forced to live on or live their lives on uh, every day. Um, so I guess the main thing that I, I think of when you, you uh, just bring up those comments is, um, yeah, w whether or not um, the people who, I guess, will be affected by the, whatever changes do occur to JobKeeper and JobSeeker will, I guess, accept that, that um, dichotomy. Sure, I'm sure there will be plenty of people, there always have been and always will be, who do support that uh, point of view and, and sort of say, well, look, uh, I'm in a job, so why can't other people be? But I think in the situation where, uh, you know, the economy has, has uh, been um, significantly battered, um, partly because of decisions the government has made and made for good reasons, um, I just don't know how viable that is as an argument to put forward and so I guess that leads the question leads to the question of whether or not the tough talk you're hearing now from the government about rolling back uh, I mean they, they say job seeker will be rolled back in September um, back to the $40 a day rate um, and and the sort of speculation about um, ending the job keeper program the wage subsidy before it's supposed to end um, I guess um, Clearly, they're they're using that that those comments that those arguments to sort of reinforce the idea that they can be can snap back, as the prime minister would say, the economy back to um, how things were with a more minimal income support. But I, I'm just skeptical about how effective it will be, to be honest. Yeah, that's an excellent point because it does show and it does mean that so many people are affected, and even um, people who are affected who haven't qualified for one or both of those uh, particular schemes. And there are also some people, as you've reported in the past, who received the disability support pension who are now receiving less than um, people who are job seekers and also um, those some of those who are students on the youth allowance um, payment. In terms of those um, who are struggling and, and people who have a disability or a chronic illness do have a lot of expenses that um, otherwise healthier people uh, don't have to contend with and these are you know significant expenses at times. How are people who are particularly um, vulnerable to coronavirus and or also um, suffer from a disability managing at the moment in terms of uh, those people who you've been speaking with and I recall um, one of your articles from the end of April just after Anzac Day when you were talking with um, some of the people who are currently contending with the lockdown and perhaps haven't been able to leave their homes uh, 
at all or barely in comparison with others who um, don't have the risk factors that they do? Um, well, I mean, I guess the the the, the ones that I've spoke, the people that I've spoken to are, uh, are not. Um, they're certainly not enjoying the situation. Um, the one of the points that is um, often um, raised with me um, is that um, you know people with disabilities say that the, their expenses, and I don't just mean medical expenses, I mean sort of groceries and um, the delivery services that they often rely on in order to, to get groceries and other um, things like that, have um, the, the prices of those things have gone up and they're unlike other people, um, those on JobSeeker and, um, and Youth Allowance, Ausstudy, as you mentioned, their incomes haven't gone up. Um, it's, it's always been the case, and the government will say that this, that um, people on disability, the disability support pension previously received a higher rate, and so that's why they haven't received this, this top-up, the this $550 or fortnight coronavirus supplement. Um, and that's true, but th that's true because they're supposed to receive more um, than people, um, you know, job seekers, well, at least under the system that we have, they're supposed to receive more because we acknowledge that they're not able to work. Um so they're going. They're finding it quite uh, difficult. Um, I spoke to people that you know have had their um, health services. Um, you know, particularly people um, with mental health that had their services uh, reduced um, or had to pay more for them. I spoke to uh, one uh, person who uh, you know spent their um, their stimulus payment. The DSP recipients got a stimulus payment of uh, two payments of seven hundred and fifty dollars instead of getting the the sort of top up five fifty a fortnight, um, you know, who spent um, their entire stimulus payment on, on treatment that they needed for chronic pain because they couldn't get it at the public hospital because, um, as you probably remember, um, elective elective procedures uh, were shut down for a period of time. Um, but I think, aside from the sort of financial aspect of, of which it, you know, there's a real a real problem and a real. Um, well, I mean, a real difficulty with people making ends meet now that their um, expenses have gone up. But I think that sort of it's a demoralising feeling to think that you, you are among the most um, vulnerable people to the uh, to you know the coronavirus. Not all people on the disability support pension because they're on it for various reasons, but lots of them are. Um, you know, have compromised immu uh, immune systems, um, and to be left out of a payment to receive very minimal, essentially no recognition of your situation in, in the midst of this pandemic, I think was quite demoralising for people. And I've received um, a lot of emails, probably more than I usually do, from people sort of um, just absolutely furious um, about it, um, people on the disability support pension, people who also received the carer payment um, or the carer, yeah, the carer payment, which is for people who who care for a child who has a disability, they're also left out as well. And so you have the situation where somebody who might receive the single parenting payment, um, uh, you know, who uh, now receives more in income support than a, a single parent who cares for the child of um, uh, a child with disability, um, which seems fairly inexplicable. The only real explanation is that the scheme was or the, the changes were sort of um, put together really quickly um, and, and in a rush and uh, they didn't want to extend it to those groups because they didn't want um, to spend the money essentially. But uh, I think aside from the, the, the you know, the, the point about 
people not having enough money and struggling financially. I think it just really was a um, real demoralizing um, thing to happen to to be sort of just left left out of this supplement, this generous supplement, which is going to so many other people. Yeah, it's absolutely understandable. And um, money does talk and it shows where the priorities are and what's valued and what's not valued. So um, it's really uh, certainly has those real life impacts, but it also can affect uh, people in their identity and their sense of self-worth when this kind of um, apparent double standard is occurring in the payments. I wanted to also touch on a um, a report that was just recently released by um, what well, was government commissioned, and it was a report um, conducted by the University of Adelaide looking at the Bundaberg and Harvey Bay trial sites for the cashless debit card. And I wondered if you could take us through those findings and also where we are currently at in terms of the government and their intentions with the cashless debit card um, for those who are receiving the job seeker payment because there are reports that they continue to intend to expand it in the future and uh, make it applicable to uh, everyone. Yes, so um, as you said, there was a report um, came, which came out uh, last week. It's a, you know, known as a baseline report. So the aim of the report was um, to figure out, I guess, what the conditions were um, in Bundaberg, Harvey Bay, in Queensland, um, when the card was rolled out, and then in some time they can use those findings to um, then uh, sort of evaluate whether or not the card has made a difference or what impact it, it has had. Um, some for some anomaly, I think there were some issues with the report, which um, I might get to in a second. But um, they ended up having to, or ended up interviewing people who were already on the card, and and what the, some of those people said was that um, they essentially reinforced the uh, concerns that people who uh, are opposed to the card have said for some time: questions of stigma, questions of the sort of practical. Um, um, problems that people have with the card, you know, delayed payments and um, things like that. Um, and essentially the, the stigma problem, you know, people told um, the, the researchers that they didn't want to use the card, that they felt like, the, you know, uh, shop assistants and um, people at uh, restaurants were, were going to judge them. Um, the government, um, there were. All, I, mean, I should also say there were also some some points um, in there um, which sort of were supportive of the card. What the researchers did was interview about 70 people who were either going to be on the card or, or on it and, um, you know, around 70, what you know, as they say in the jargon, stakeholders, so it's a whole bunch of different people from um, charities to, um, you know, local council organisations and other um, sort of organisations within the area. Um, and so... That there were some suggestions within the, sta- the stakeholders that uh, the the card would have some, um, you know, propo- uh, the, the, some benefits. Uh, at least they could foresee some benefits in the future once the card had been in there for long enough. Um, but to get to the point about um, what the government's planning to do, the government's position is still that it wants to um, expand the card into the Northern Territory, and I think legislation for that. Um, Will you know they will probably I think attempt to pass that um, in this coming um, uh, parliamentary session. Um, 
Northern Territory already has the basics card, which was a, um, a, a policy imposed on um, you know, Aboriginal Australians during the intervention, but they want to sort of bring the cashless debit card into the Northern Territory. Um, and, and they have a broader aim, which is to maybe one day expand it to all people on social security. Um, I think as we might have discussed before, Amy, that sort of uh, kind of um, seems to be some sort of uh, ambition, but um, I think it's a long way off because they don't have the support even to have, um, you know, the Northern Territory expansion um, is still sort of potentially not a goer in Parliament. But yes, the aim is perhaps that someday everyone who receives uh, at least the job seeker payment might be on the cashless debit card. Yes, it is that um, ongoing kind of news story that crops up every couple of weeks to months saying this is what we want, this is what we're planning. And it does put a lot of anxiety, I think, um, within the community for, you know, those people who are concerned about how that would practically affect them. And also, as you say in the article um, when you've reported on this debit card, is that it does come with a lot of stigma and also fears of stigma and um, and that's just one layer. Then there's the other layers, of course, which is the the pragmatic amounts of um, the the proportion of cash to debit card and um, needing access to more cash and where you can use the debit card and all of those practical considerations we've touched on before. So um, it is obviously something to keep an eye on, I guess, and see how things are developing. Luke, in terms of the um, the new session or the return session, Parliament is resuming today um, and I wonder in your round and what you're looking at what are some of the things that you're keeping an eye out for in terms of uh, more developments and things that we need to keep an eye across? Um, I mean I guess the thing that I'm be most uh, interested in and I don't know whether there'll be anything coming out of parliament about this is just what's going to keep, keep happening with the uh, so-called robo-debt uh, issue Um I did write about that last uh, month. Um, you know, I managed to see some uh, some uh, documents or, uh, you know, government uh, advice which basically laid out the, the, the amount of um, debts, the number of debts that the government uh, at least has privately conceded that it might, might have to uh, pay back. That's the subject of a, a um, court, a, a, a class action at the moment, which is ongoing, but that, that is... Now get, we're getting close to um, a point where there, there might be a, a, a trial or a, you know a court hearing on that. Um, and so, given that, um, and given I guess the reporting I mentioned, which essentially says that the government acknowledges it's going to have to pay back about uh, six hundred thousand people, um, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to hear something uh, a pre uh, a pre trial announcement if there was to be an agreement if the government does acknowledge that it, it's done wrong and doesn't want to have to go through a trial which um, it has been reluctant to do um, um, as, as you'll know Amy basically at every point it's been reluctant to to sort of defend the scheme in um, in court mm. so um, perhaps we will see some, some movement uh, on that um, I mean aside from that there the the social services minister Anne Ruston now has this incredible power to um, change um, social security um, mostly without legislation and, and so you know I'm sure there'll be some lot of campaigning for people with disability to, on the disability support pension to receive the extra 
payment. So I'm not sure how successful uh, that will be, but that will definitely be something that people are pushing for. Um, um, and um, the same with carers. Um, but yeah, I, I think those the robo debt issue um, I suspect will be something that um, at least in, if not in this parliamentary session, uh, there should be some movement on that in, in the coming weeks, I think. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, there are so many other parts we won't get to touch on, but if, if people are interested and want to understand more, they can check out Luke's reporting on the Guardian website with his colleagues, of course, uh, doing a great job. And of course, also the live blog for Australian politics, which does keep you very up to date in terms of the latest things coming out of Canberra. Luke, it's been really, really great and valuable to chat with you today. And I appreciate um, the work you're doing. And thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. No, I appreciate the work uh, you're doing too, Amy. Keep up the good work. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. I'm so delighted to have with me on Skype the fantastic author and naturalist Cy Montgomery, who is the author of many, many books, as I mentioned, uh, almost 30, I believe. And we're going to be focusing our attention on a couple which I think um, bring to life Cy's amazing life um, and her insights into the different creatures that she's encountered and observed uh, up close through her work. And these two books that we're going to be looking at and chatting with Sai about are How to Be a Good Creature and also The Soul of an Octopus. And they are um, some of Sai's most recent works. But of course, as I mentioned, there are so many others and they are also very well known and, and very well received. So if you are um, interested in the things we're picking up. There's uh, many different elements to explore in Sai's work. Uh, I welcome Sai now, who's joining us via Skype from New Hampshire in America. Hi there, Sai. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Oh, it's great to be talking with you in Australia. I, I wish I could just use all this time to ask you about how things are there, because I haven't <laughs> been in years, and I love Australia so much. That's really lovely to hear. And I do, I was reading your book, How to Be a Good Creature, and uh, I loved your chapter on emus and your time in Australia. When was that? Um, when was your last trip to Australia as well? Was that the same trip? Oh, no, I've been back since. Um, my my first trip was uh, 1983. I went as a volunteer with Earthwatch to um, a place about two hours away from Adelaide called the Brookfield Conservation Park and became so enchanted with your country and the wildlife there that I went home and quit my job and bought a tent and moved to the outback <laughs> and studied emus. That was in 1984. And wow. um, I've been back a couple of times since then. I went to Queensland um, where I, I met some tree kangaroos at a wonderful uh, tree kangaroo rehab place on my way to Papua New Guinea to do a book on the Matches tree kangaroo. And I also went back researching um, a chapter in a book called Birdology, um, again to Queensland, uh, to meet your cassowary. 
Wow. That's so amazing. And I do, um, I love the fact that you recognized Australia's kind of unique uh, biodiversity and the really amazingly kind of special creatures that in many cases are only found in Australia. Yeah, I had always wanted to go to Australia. It was one of those places growing up as a child that I just longed to visit because you've got such different creatures there. And we only have one marsupial here in North America, which is the Virginia opossum didelphus americanus. But it just seems like such a great idea. I mean, I personally have have not had any children, but um, I think most women who have would agree that it would be an excellent idea to give birth to someone the size of a kidney bean who then <laughs> rides around in your belly pocket until they're cute enough to poke their head out and say hello. It is pretty convenient and they are absolutely <laughs> adorable. Honestly, it's it's a really great idea. Yeah. It's too bad it didn't catch on more in North America. <laughs> <laughs> it is really interesting how, um, you know, Australia was part of that big continent of Gondwana and then it was broken up and we've since seen how evolution has kind of created these different species and you Reference in your books about evolution and how these different creatures and species have evolved and um, how related we are by how many billions of years or millions of years. Um, but I did want to just briefly touch on your your kind of formative years um, that you really highlight in your book, How to Be a Good Creature, before we move into some of the individual animals like the octopus, um, which we might touch on in more detail. Uh, but one of the lovely things about um, How to Be a Good Creature is that I guess it's a memoir, but it's a very unconventional memoir and one that I think is just beautiful um, and highlights and illuminates your life and your passion in such a wonderful way through the actual animals you've had uh, these lovely friendships and relationships with. And um, I'd just like to, to quote um, something from the introduction, which is that you say... Just being with an animal is edifying, for each has a knowing that surpasses human understanding. A spider can taste the world with her feet. Birds can see colours we can't begin to describe. A cricket can sing with his legs and listen with his knees. A dog can hear sounds above the level of human hearing and can tell if you're upset even before you're aware of it yourself. And so you go on to say, what have animals taught me about life? How to be a good creature. And... Um, it really does begin to open up your mind to how you perceive the world and, and animals. And I just wanted to understand this perspective that you're coming from, which is not a, really an anthropocentric perspective of, you know, humans are the dominant force and we are, you know, unique and special and superior to all other living creatures because we can, you know, kill them. And um, there there is this very... Uh, dominant type of trope or story that has been perpetuated by humans and built up almost a mythology around how special we are. And of course, we are special in different ways. But you're also in your life and your work bridging that divide between humans and animals, aren't you? Well, yes, when I was little, gosh, as soon as I could speak, I was able to finally tell my parents that I was not a little girl, but I was a horse. <laughs> 
And my mother was very concerned and went to the pediatrician. And the pediatrician reassured her that I would grow out of that. And, and the pediatrician was right, because shortly thereafter, I announced that I was really a dog. <laughs> and my mother thought, you know, somehow I'd been dropped on my head. But um, at, at a point in my life when I was about three, uh, three years old, my parents wised up and got an actual dog to live in our house with us. And her name was Molly. And we were both youngsters at that time. But as you know, dogs mature much faster than we do. And while I was only three years old, a year later, I was still a kid, but Molly was turning into an adult. And I looked up to her as if she was my big sister. And I have always looked up to animals. I've never looked down on animals. I've always felt like when you're in the presence of an animal, you are in the presence of someone who can teach you so much and who can be a fabulous mentor and show you things about our world that we can't with our senses access, but are nonetheless true things about the world because they can hear things and see things and smell things and with other with other senses perceive truths about our world that we don't have access to but we do if we hang out with these animals and my dream was always to hang out with Molly and have her teach me all the secrets of the wild animals that she could smell and see and hear, but I could not. And although she died before I was out of high school, I did go on and make my career, essentially, following in my older sister's footsteps or paw prints. And that's what I do in all of my books. Mm. And it's so interesting that this was such an early experience for you before you could even speak your your own language, that you had this unspoken connection, I guess a mental connection with um, and a sensory connection with animals. And uh, I, was yeah, in, I think yeah. most children do, yeah. though, don't you think? I mean, a, a lot of children, children's dreams are full of animals, children instantly will reach for and speak to animals. Children also recognized long before it was recognized by scientists that animals are individuals. We used to, scientists were not even supposed to name their study animals, but gave them numbers. And Jane Goodall in 1960 got in big trouble. Nobody wanted to publish her super important papers about tool use in chimpanzees because she named each individual chimp instead of numbering them as if they were they were interchangeable but children know this and i think that it comes from being a species that until very recently we're all hunter gatherers and if you did not pay attention to animals and to the rest of the natural world you were you were toast that was the mm. end of you and i think it's unfortunate that in in our society a lot of people squelch that natural knowledge and affinity that children have for our fellow creatures. I, I think if children ran the world and adults didn't come mess it up, <laughs> I don't think so many of us would be eating animals and destroying their habitats and we wouldn't have COVID-19. <laughs> mm. 
Well, you referenced there my interview from last week, which was with David Quarman, and we were talking exactly about that, which is a human's interference with wild animals and their habitats and, and how that leads to zoonotic spillovers, which are obviously very disturbing. You, you raised there such a really fascinating point, and it did make me reflect on my childhood, which I actually hadn't really done. And um, I certainly had close relationships with the animals that I encountered, but I hadn't really thought all that deeply about what it mean, meant to me. Like it did mean a lot to me at the time, but I had this really lovely friendship with a guinea pig or a hamster, as you would call them in America. Called, oh. Yeah, called Sparky. And he, to me, was one of my best friends. And I felt like we had an unspoken connection and language. And he understood me probably better than most other people. And um, and then similarly, when I went on camp, I think it was in when I was eight years old, um, we went to a pig farm, which was a kind of interesting place to send uh, children. And there were a whole group of <laughs> new piglets just born and everyone was picking them up and hugging them and, you know, fascinated by the babies. And I kind of went over and walked out to look at the other pens where the adults were. And there was this one really, really large pig that um, I was kind of fascinated by and drawn to and um, the pig couldn't actually move because they'd been fed so much that um, they were in pain and they were about to be sent off. Yeah, they are about to be sent off to slaughter and I spent such a long time just standing there looking at this pig and kind of, I guess, kind of communicating in the only way I knew how when I was eight and, um, you know, I took photos of it to remember it by because I felt like I understood its pain and anguish when it was sitting there because it did, I could sense it. And um, from that very moment, that made me vegetarian. So, <laughs> Yay, good for you. Well, that's yeah. why you're so good looking um, <laughs> and strong and healthy. Hopefully. And right now, we're actually in America, um, a lot of the slaughterhouses and meatpacking plants and stuff because of COVID-19 yeah. um, are closing down and there's a meat shortage. And I feel like, oh. come on over and come to the to the vegetarian side we'll show you some delicious things we'd love to share with you (laughs) come over to the light yeah (laughs) I'm really proud because um yeah I I think it's very easy to have a balanced diet if you're if you have the information available to you about how to do that as a vegetarian so um yeah it's lovely to see and and that was something that I felt I didn't really have to question or think about I just changed my behavior and and I, th- I felt like that empathetic emotional connection that I as a child had was strong. And I wondered whether you, when you've been encountering these animals, particularly when you mentioned there you're really um, one of your closest friends in life was Christopher Hogwood, one of your pigs, and he just sounded so amazing. And I wondered <laughs> about that unspoken connection that you had and the understanding you had about the different kind of noises that he would make to, to greet different people. Yes. Oh, gosh, Amy, you would have loved him. And yeah. I think he would have loved you. <laughs> yeah, he had um, special greetings for special people. He had a deep grunt for my husband, Howard. Um, he had a special grunt for the little girls who lived next door. He had one friend who she died at age 14. Her name was Kelly. And she had a, a brain tumor. And even as she was very sick and going through chemo, her parents would bring this this thin 
frail, ill little girl over to my 750-pound pig, whose head alone probably weighed 100 pounds, with his sharp tusks, and be absolutely certain that she would be treated with great tenderness. And he had a special, very gentle grunt for her. And he was super strong. I mean, if he felt like it, he'd just knock over the entire woodpile by touching it with his nose. Hmm. He went over to to the house and touched one of the clabbers with his nose and it flew off. You know, he was super, super strong. But he never hurt any of the children that he was friends with. We had friends in wheelchairs. And you could see how to a, a pig, it might seem very amusing to knock over the wheelchair and watch the person spill out and all that kind of stuff. But no, he understood that the person in the wheelchair doesn't want that. Mm. And although he knocked over the woodpile, which annoyed us, he, he knew that a person in a wheelchair is different from watching, you know, the delight of all those logs going everywhere. And he was super gentle with, with everyone, actually. He was wonderful. And there was one guy who was like his super special friend, our friend Ray. Um, Ray weighed 300 pounds, and he only came over a couple of, of times in the course of several years. But Christopher Hogwood remembered him, and I think he felt like, man, this guy knows where the food is. He's my special friend. And he gave Ray these incredibly appreciative deep grunts that he gave to absolutely no one else. And Howard and I were astonished that he remembered what Ray looked like. Because, <laughs> you know, he would come over and then you wouldn't see him for years and there he would be again and he'd give him that special grunt. But they know individual people and they know who their, who their friends are. And that's that, you know, thing that we kind of make assumptions about is that animals, you know, have a kind of basic understanding because they're not speaking our specific language, that perhaps they're not seeing the world as we are, and maybe they're not, but they're actually seeing it in a very sophisticated way, as you've stated, with their ability to um, relate to, to other beings, including humans, and also to have that memory and that special individual relationship with each different person. Yes, absolutely. The, the things with, with animals, you know, the animals that we get along with best do see the world in a similar way that we do. I mean, pigs actually are so like us that you can get a pig valve in your heart. Mm. You know, um, you can, our skin is so similar that doctors use their skin to graft onto burn victims. They're very, very similar to us. But they also have these super senses. And Chris could smell stuff from miles away. And you could see him thinking about this stuff. He, he also was mechanically very uh, talented. And he learned how to open his own pen by threading his nose disc through the slats of his gate and moving the, uh, the, um, the latch that didn't just have to be moved to the side. It had to be twisted and then moved. He figured out how to do that from the opposite side. So he couldn't even see what he was doing. And he would do this. And then he would go off to people's vegetable gardens that he'd been smelling. You know, the information about what was ripe in the garden was coming on the air. And he would he would travel. I mean, thank God he did not go for miles, but he traveled 
pretty impressive distances and he would show up in people's vegetable gardens. But he was so agreeable that even as he was trashing your vegetable garden, he would make friends with you. <laughs> and that's how I was able to meet a lot of our neighbors here in Hancock because I'm pretty shy. But by the time I showed up, by the time they figured out this was my pig and had called me and I came rushing over, Christopher Hogwood had already charmed them. And so I had a new friend. That's amazing. What a great icebreaker. <laughs> yeah, I know. Gosh, I used to be scared to go to parties because you never know what to say to people. Mm. They're talking about stuff I don't, I don't know from. But if you have a pig, you can just point to something on their plate that they haven't eaten saying my pig would like that and then you've got a whole conversation oh what else does he like and then the next thing you know they're coming over to your house with their stale bagels and their freezer burned ice cream to watch your pig eat which is a we call it dinner and a show because mm. it's so much fun to watch someone enjoy themselves so much and we yankees here in, in new england we hate the idea of throwing away perfectly good food just because it's a little bit stale or has a little touch of mold but watching someone enjoy the food that you didn't know what to do with there's really nothing more delightful <laughs> except possibly pig spa which was the other thing that that we did a lot with christopher and this is how i made friends with children i i hadn't had many child friends growing up i was an only child and my father was an army general and on the army base you didn't want to have you know the enlisted men's children they were afraid to play with the general's daughter and i went to school off base and anyway so i managed to get to be like 30 years old without having many children friends in my life but christopher hogwood's the one who taught me how much fun kids are and he did this by instigating pig spa and all the neighborhood kids would do this but particularly the little girls next door who really started it with him we would get a big bucket of soapy water and we'd get a whole bunch of treats and uh chris loved a warm soapy bath and he would lie down and we would scrub him and we would rub the stuff on his hooves to make them gleam and we would brush him and we would braid the hair on his tail and then we would all eat chocolate donuts <laughs> <laughs> so it was great and he's the one that taught me what great friends children can be which i'd never known Oh, that's so beautiful. Um, and <laughs> not that surprising. I feel like that's so lovely that um, that children do have that instant connection with pigs and other animals. And, you know, then, I mean, some some children might be a little bit apprehensive, but it's not that hard once you see that an animal is friendly and it's not threatening to, you know, to make that connection uh, with them. And I remember in your book when you were referring to uh, animals and how, you know, in your specific circumstances, you've found them to be less threatening and, and less um, scary, per se, than human beings have been. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when when you're a kid, I don't know if this happened to you, but I, I was just constantly astonished at how mean people were. Mm. I mean, why? What is the benefit of being mean to anyone? I was astonished that people lie, like, all the time. Um, and I, I don't think all people are horrible. I, I married one. Um, <laughs> I, I have, you know, a number of 
wonderful human friends. Uh, but now animals are capable of lying, by the way, but they, they don't, they don't do it to us as much as we do it to each other. And if you just pay attention to them, they reward that attention in such a marvelous way by giving you entree into another piece of the world that you would never otherwise get to know. Absolutely. That's so true. Um, I just want to briefly touch on emus before we get to the octopus, because that's a lovely segue. Um, I just, I wanted to ask about emus because in Australia, not all people, but I know that a lot of people who, who wouldn't have met an emu or kind of had a, a an interaction with an emu um, may not really understand their personality and their um, characteristics and their behaviours. And I, th- I think a lot of their behaviours are taken at face value that perhaps they're, you know, scaredy cats that, you know, are frightened about any kind of jump or sound and, um, and they're often really diminished or treated in a diminished way because people think that they're not particularly intelligent. And I was just wondering if you could share with us some of the observations you made when you um, established this really great rapport with three funny and really lovely uh, emus in Australia in the outback. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, I remember the first sight I I ever caught of them at at close range. I was... um, I was working at Brookfield Conservation Park. I had had gone there just so drawn to want to be in Australia with these. I hadn't decided what to to study yet. And so I was helping a graduate student. Um, She was in another part of the park and I was in this part and I was um, harvesting some plants for um, a nitrogen study. And suddenly, for some reason, I looked up and these three birds, taller than a man were walking right by me. I couldn't believe it. If I had, if an angel had appeared in front of me at that moment, I couldn't have been more astonished or delighted. Um, they were curious. They were curious about me. And that's a mark of intelligence. Mm. And everything about them seemed so unlikely. I mean, we, we do not have any ratite birds here in the United States. Um, flightless birds. I mean, the idea of birds with little eight-inch wing stumps that hang like a comical afterthought off of their haystack-looking bodies, the feathers on an emu look unlike the feathers that you see on any birds in the in the States. Everything about them was alien and exciting, and so I thought, wow, you know, I, I would love to study these guys. But I didn't think I'd actually be able to follow them around but I could. And the reason I could was that I let them see me rather than try to sneak after them. I mean, their eyesight is like the average bird's eyesight's more than 40 times better than ours. You, you can't sneak up on them. You have to let them know that there you are and that you're harmless. And very quickly, they learned that I was harmless and let me walk with them almost like, I mean, without social distance. <laughs> um, and it was marvelous. And I would just stroll over the outback with these emus watching every single thing they did. And everything was a revelation. But one of the, um, the funnest, coolest things I saw was their sense of humor. 
one day they came up by Dean Newell's house, who was the park ranger, and he had a dog out on a chain. Well, these emus knew about that chain, knew about that dog, knew how long the chain was. And they, they ran up in front of the dog, knowing that the dog was going to rush out, hit the, you know, the end of the chain, sputter, barking, desperate to get to them. And they just did this like head neck dance. They kicked up their feet and they, they moved their little wing stumps forward and they threw their necks back and the dog was going ballistic and they were, <laughs> they thought this was hilarious. They did this for a while and then they just calmly strolled away and sat down and preened themselves the same way <laughs> that you would like rub your fingernails on your vest and blow on them or something to, uh, wasn't that a pretty funny joke we <laughs> We pulled on that guy. Anyway, that that, that was so funny because it was so similar to what a human would find hilarious. Mm. And they they let me see that. Um, I, I went into this study not knowing any of the ideas that, that people had about emus. I didn't know I was going to study them. I went in as a blank slate, you know. Yeah. And... Um, that interestingly, I mean, I'm not going to compare myself with the great Jane Goodall, but that is how Jane Goodall went into the field studying chimpanzees. She was not trained as a scientist. She'd been a secretary. You know, Diane Fossey, when she went to study the mountain gorillas in Rwanda, she wasn't trained as a scientist. She was an occupational therapist. So sometimes just going in and letting the animal teach you, not what other people say about them, not what other scientists even have found out about them, but just let the animal be your teacher. There's this great saying that kind of runs my life, and it, it, you've probably heard this before, but it goes, uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And yeah. for me, the teacher sometimes has two legs, but sometimes has four or six or eight or, or none. Mm, that's so true. I, I think that's like the case with animals and just anything in life is that you have to be ready and then you, you learn those lessons and the possibilities that are opened up with an interaction or an experience. And that brings us to your experiences with octopuses, which are the feature of such a brilliant book. I know you've probably heard this so many times, but it, it was really brilliant and amazing and eye-opening and fascinating and so relatable. Um, and I mean, not many people would get the opportunity, I think, to interact with an octopus like you have. Um, and, uh, and they might have done it at a distance at an aquarium, but they may not have had the chance to actually, you know, touch an octopus and have that, that basic back and forth interaction. And so I wanted to ask about what brought you to uh, to meet an octopus? Athena was the first one, I believe, that you met at the New yeah. England Aquarium, and and then how that opened up your thinking about um, issues of of things like consciousness and how you as a human can begin to understand and relate and um, and t tap into the consciousness of an octopus. Well, this was a, a book that I waited a long time to write. I, for a long time, I thought one day 
I want to write about the the kind of animal life that is most numerous on the planet, but that very few people seem to know or care about. And mm-hmm. that is invertebrates, particularly marine invertebrates. Now, I had written a, a, a book for young readers on tarantulas, and I'd gotten to know some tarantulas, another eight-legger. I've got a thing for the eight-leggers. <laughs> um, but, you know, most of animal life on this planet lives in the sea and has no backbone. Um, what's their life like? I really, really wanted to explore this, but I didn't, I mean, frankly, I did not think I was smart enough to even attempt it for a very long time. But finally, I felt like the time is now. I am going to meet a marine invertebrate and see if I can make one my friend. So in March of 2011, on this Beautiful sunny day where people were outside licking ice cream cones. I went into the cool, damp halls of the New England Aquarium and asked one of the keepers if he would lift the lid to the tank where Athena, the giant Pacific octopus, was living. And I was floored by what happened. The minute she saw me, Her eye swiveled in its socket and locked into mine. She looked at my face. And that, for one thing, is amazing because their face and our face, they're very different. Octopuses are arranged so differently than we are. Mm. You know, their mouth is in their armpits. You know, we go head, body, limbs. They go body, head, limbs. Many people think that the, the, the octopus's head is not where it actually is. But the octopus knew where my eyes were and she locked onto those eyes she turned bright red which is the color of an excited octopus and she immediately left her lair and oozed over to get closer to me and soon i saw her arms boiling up out of the water and these questing white suckers reaching for my arms and i asked can i touch her and the aquarius scott dowd who is still my dear friend said sure, go ahead. So I plunged my hands and arms into the very cold water and instantly my hands and arms were covered with dozens of these soft questing suckers. And the suckers, you know, I realized not everybody would like this, but um, the suckers are tasting you as well as feeling you. And had this happened with a person I had just met to discover that they were tasting me so early in our relationship would have been distressing, but I was delighted that this was happening with Athena because it meant that she was just as curious about me as I was about her. And she found me of such interest that she began to pull me into the tank. I mean, not in a a scary way, not like in... Victor Hugo, Toiler of the Sea way, thinking that, you know, the horrible octopus is going to kill you. It wasn't like that. It was more like, I want to know more about this person. And she (laughs) let me pet her head, which was also very cool. They, They don't always let you pet their head. And in fact, she had never let a stranger pet her head before. And then she began to turn white beneath my touch. And I felt her relaxing. And I later discovered that white is the color of a relaxed octopus. So right away, you know, I didn't know if she 
considered me a friend, but I know that she liked the fact that I was there. So I was hooked. <laughs> and I came back again and again. But unfortunately, you know, octopuses don't live very long. And a giant Pacific octopus starts out the size of a grain of rice. So by the time you meet one in an aquarium, it's a large animal, and they only are going to live three to five years tops. So you're not going to know an octopus very long before it breaks your heart. And I'd only been there three or four times before she she died. Um, but then the next octopus, Octavia, I got to know her from the time shortly after she arrived at the aquarium until almost the day she died. And I got to know other octopuses as well at the aquarium. And I learned to scuba dive. So I got to meet wild octopuses. And boy, Australia has so much going for it. You, of course, have, not only do you have the, the blue ring, bling, the blue ringed octopus, which we should warn people not to touch. Yeah. because They're very, very venomous. And they, they can kill you without even trying. I mean, your first symptom is that you're dead a lot of times, and there's no anti-venom for them. Um, but you also have an incredible place called Octopolis, where a whole bunch of octopus tetricus called the gloomy octopus hang out. And this is extensively studied in one day. Oh, my gosh. When this COVID-19 thing goes away, I want to get on a plane and come and, and dive on Octopolis and, and learn more from the people who've been studying the animals there. But, you know, even though that's a different octopus species, octopus everywhere are super intelligent. And one of the ways they show their intelligence is that they love to play with objects. They love to explore objects. So one of the things that the octopuses at Octopolis are doing um, is that the, the folks who are studying them have all kinds of GoPros out filming them. And one of the most common things that you see on film is one octopus stealing from another octopus one of the GoPros. <laughs> That's hilarious. So they love to play with stuff. And in captivity, um, what people do to amuse their octopus is they give them the same kind of toys that we give to our children. They love to play with Mr. Potato Head. They love to play with Legos. Mm. They, they love to snake their arms into little tubes. They love to unscrew jars and sometimes will screw the lid back on just to amuse themselves. That's so amazing. And you bring out there so many features of the octopus. And um, I'd love to pick up on the fact that, uh, as you say, octopuses are individuals with different personalities. And um, as you also say, octopuses realize that humans are individuals too, and that they like some people and then they dislike others and they behave differently based on that um, relationship of like, dislike, trust, distrust. Yes, it's so amazing. This, this was first demonstrated scientifically at the Seattle Aquarium in which they took two groups of volunteers identically dressed and the, the um, octopuses would be exposed to one group of volunteers and um, those people would give the octopus a delicious fish. And then the octopus would meet another group of volunteers and those people would touch the octopus with a bristly stick, which they don't like. And very quickly, the octopuses learn just looking up through the water without even tasting the people. Even if you left your tasty fish at home, the octopus would look up at the water and come toward you. Oh, here's my friend. 
This is, you know, somebody who's done something fun and nice with me. They would look at the people who had touched with the bristly stick, even if the bristly stick had been left at home. They'd look at that person and they would jet away from them. Oh, I'm getting the heck out of here. They would often make an eye bar to disguise their eye, which is what they do to protect themselves from um, like evil predators or someone who's going to do something bad. The eye bar makes their eye look bigger and they look like a bigger animal. And many of them would also take their funnel and blast freezing cold salt water into the faces of the people who had touched them with that nasty bristly stick. <laughs> That's so wonderful. And uh, I know that even your friend got a blast of that water in her face. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, some, you know, sometimes they blast it in your face the same way a, a little boy will splash you with water in the swimming pool. Sometimes mm. they'll do it to play. Um and they do use their jet uh, to, to play with toys. Sometimes they amuse themselves by blasting like a, a floating object with their jet and, and cause the floating object to um, travel along the trajectory that the filter is, is sending the water in a stream. It's almost like bouncing the ball. And then they'll blast it again and it'll come back and they'll blast it again and it'll come back. Um, sometimes they'll blast butterflies. Um, they'll look up through they don't want to eat the butterfly they don't eat butterflies but they'll look up through the water see a butterfly and just blast it with water to see what it'll do and the butterfly flies off frightened it's just like you know little boys that 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 run after pigeons in the park to make them fly and they're, they're really it's so amazing that here's somebody separated from us by half a billion years of evolution and, and yet they often like the same kinds of things that we do, even though they can taste with their skin and they've got blue blood and they have three hearts and their, their brain is a ring around their throat. They still can be friends with us because we have something to offer them. And that is that we both like to play. Mm. Yeah, and uh, when you were talking about um, that touch between yourself and Athena and then, of course, you did have those subsequent interactions with Octavia, you talk about and, and theorise around the idea of them being able to sense our neurotransmitters and the kind of chemicals and contents of our blood and, um, and that's another way that they interact and assess us. Yeah, I... I don't think anyone has done any scientific testing of, of that idea, but it does make sense. Um, their chemoreception abilities are fantastic. They can taste with all of their skin, including like their eyelids, but that sense of taste of chemoreception is most exquisitely developed in the suckers. And they spent a lot of time exploring the inside of my arms. And as you know, from, well, from kangaroos licking the the inside of their arms, which they do to cool off, that there's a lot of blood vessels close to the surface there mm. and along our wrists too, as, as you know. And um, the octopuses that I knew very much liked that. Um, and I wondered, could they taste beneath my skin to taste my blood? I first got that idea after one time... I, I stubbed my toe on my way up the little uh, step ladder that we used to stand on to lean over the octopus tank. And it hurt. And 
when you're in pain, your neurotransmitters change. You're, you're, you're flooded with essentially the, the pain that, that you feel. It's, it can be measured in your blood. And boy, was she interested in me then. That was, that was really pretty fascinating. And an, another instance, too, made me wonder about this. My friend Anna, um, who was this wonderful teenager, uh, and she loved octopus. She was a volunteer at the aquarium. She was on a lot of different medicines. She had Asperger's, and she had all kinds of little physical problems. And one day, um, Kali, who was a totally sweet octopus, bit her. Mm-hmm. And we were floored. She didn't envenomate her. She purposely did not envenomate her. And it wasn't a bad bite. It was like a parakeet biting you. But still, I mean, oh, my gosh, what happened? Well, what had happened, I wondered, like, what what was different about Anna today that wasn't true the week before and the week before and the week before, all those other times that Kali had not bitten her and had no interest in biting her? Well, she had just had a major change in medicine. And I wonder if Kali thought that she could taste, she tasted funny mm. and wanted to explore that a little more with her beak. That's so, so interesting and fascinating. And it raises that point where, of course, there are scientists studying octopuses, but there are so many things that are yet to be fully explored and understood. And um, one of the areas that I'd also like to touch on um, is this kind of immeasurable or... um, and not to discount it, I actually think it's probably more important in a way, the qualitative type of research that you can do as you do by observing and interacting with an octopus like Octavia, which you write about. And and you write that even when you had to head over to a conference one week so you didn't get to see Octavia, the response that you got from her when you returned was so enthusiastic that there seemed to be this budding and building friendship and relationship between you two. Yeah, and I was shocked. I did not expect that. I mean, I, I, it was she showing me this. It wasn't me projecting my hopes or beliefs onto her. I was stunned. Mm. And one of my dear friends, Wilson Manashi, who's a, an engineer, he was a, um, he had many patents to his name and he was always saying, Hey, you know, don't overthink this. And, um, he, he wasn't an ooby groovy kind of guy. You know? <laughs> and, uh, he was floored at some of the stuff that he saw happen not projecting onto the octopus things that we believed or hoped, but the octopus was revealing to us things we did not expect. Yeah, exactly. And and some of those interesting things that are revealing from an octopus, and I guess maybe they give away some of the game at times, um, is the way that their, uh, their flesh or skin colour changes so quickly and is also so variable in its colour and patterns. And you write about that and how uh, unique and special and um, also, I guess, illuminating and indicative it, it can be when you are, you are interacting with an octopus. Honestly, man, I wish I knew what all the color changes meant. Um, It's amazing to watch this stuff. I know some of them, at least the individuals that I knew, 
you know, they, they get red with excitement, excitement if they're mad or excitement if they're happy. The same way a person kind of can, can get red with excitement when they're mad or they're happy. Mm. Um, and they, they can go white when they're feeling calm and relaxed. Another thing that I've observed is that frequently when an octopus is trying to solve a problem, um, it will change all kinds of colors like a person wrinkling their brow. And I, I wonder if by engaging their chromatophores in that way, you know why we wrinkle our brows is that it actually changes the blood flow to our brains. That's mm. why we do that, not to just look funny. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, when, when we smile, it, it, it also... Um, it, it literally makes you happier to smile because of the way the muscles push on your nerves and um, move your blood around and stuff like that. Wow. Um, but ah, I've, I'm still friends, by the way, with, with octopuses at the aquarium. Unfortunately, I can't go there now, but the day before the aquarium was closed, I went to see my friend Rudy, who's a, a very wonderful, affectionate octopus. But there's another octopus there, um, Edmund who's so shy, he hardly ever comes out. So they, they really all are very distinctive and they recognize that we're distinctive too. It amazes me that you can have a meeting of, a, of the minds a, across mm. this enormous evolutionary divide. And to me, I think that's one of the reasons why the, the book resonated with people because I think we're hungry for connection with the rest of animate life on this earth. And to know that, yeah, a person can be friends with an octopus. Our last shared ancestor was back when everybody was a tube. <laughs> and that, that, to me, shows that our world is, is so shockingly alive so thrillingly vibrant so conscious and and so sacred and so holy that it demands a different response to the natural world than what most of humanity is showing right now yeah it's so true it's a completely a, a total paradigm shift, really, but from where we currently sit um, as a majority, uh, I know there's definitely exceptions, but it is um, disturbing to still think that we see ourselves as this kind of separate entity with our environment and then nature is there to provide for us, to give us nourishment um, and for us to appreciate or to be fearful of, depending on the situation. Um, it's much I guess, more obvious when you're in a position like you are to see everything is interconnected and everything is being open and, and a, a kind of world of curiosity. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. Um, most older traditions, including all the major religions, though, tell us that we and everything else alive on this earth share the same parent. So would you treat your siblings the way humans treat animals? No. Mm. Um, would you the, – the worst thing I think that you, you, you could do to annoy the creator 
would be to treat his or her creation disrespectfully. Um, instead, it's it's much better to be embedded in a family in, in which you respect and really reverence everybody else on the planet. And we feel more at home here. I don't want to be alone on some pinnacle. That's a lonely place to be. Mm. And, and I feel bad for people who only have friends of one species. That, that would be like if you only listened to one piece of music your whole life or if you only ate one food. Yeah, it would be a very, very one-dimensional world, wouldn't it? Sensorially, yes. but also, as you do say, emotionally and morally as well. Yeah. And I don't know, the, the, gifts, that, the gifts that animals have given me, I, w- I would have nothing, I would be nothing if it, if it weren't for the animals that have let, let me into their lives and, and, and shown me um, their glory. They, they, they've been everything to me my, my whole life. And often we feel, when, when we meet an animal doing the same, the same thing that we do, um, it, it just reinforces that idea of, of kinship. But I love also how different we are. You know, I love that, that diversity. I love that I can play a game with somebody who can taste with their suckers and can change color and squirt ink. You know, I love it that I have a friend like that. And yet we can have a a meeting in the minds and we can enjoy our, our time together. Mm. And, you know, people say, well, you're just you're just anthropomorphizing. You're just projecting onto the animal what you feel. Um, but I know that is not true because I came not expecting anything, just open to what the animal would show me, and I saw the effort to which the octopuses would go to include me in play, and finally how Octavia went to a great deal of effort to say goodbye when she was about to die. I certainly did not expect that. And neither did, did my friend Wilson, the, the engineer. But when she was old and sick and we knew that her life would soon be over, uh, the aquarist Bill Murphy moved her from her exhibit to a, a darker, calmer place that was more like the darkness of the den where an octopus would hole up for the last weeks and days of his or her life. And when he did this, he asked an assistant to go in and move Octavia. And Octavia tasted the assistant and didn't know him, didn't want anything to do with him, even though she was old and near death, she was still strong. Because those suckers, each sucker 
on a, on a big male, you can get a sucker that's three and a half inches in, in diameter, and that can lift 30 pounds. And they have 200 suckers on each of their eight arms. So this is a tremendously strong animal, even in her last days. So Octavia wasn't moving. So then Bill, the keeper who saw her every day, he reached his hand in and she tasted his skin. And she had been kind of holed up in her den, taking care of her eggs. She'd laid eggs, but they were not fertile for nine months. And for an animal who lives three to five years, nine months is the equivalent of decades. Mm. So she hadn't looked up to see him or tasted his skin for nine months, for decades. It was actually longer than nine months now than I remember. I think it was 10 or even longer. Anyway, she tasted him and remembered him and trusted him and let go and let Bill move her. And the next week, I went in with with Wilson Menashe, the volunteer who I was telling you about, and we wondered if she would remember us. And we looked into the, the barrel where she was, and she looked up at us, and even though she was sick and old and dying, she, she had an infected eye um, that was all swollen. She rose to the top of, the, of her new tank, or the barrel, and reached out to touch us and hold on to us. And we offered her a fish, but she didn't want the fish. She dropped the fish. She took it and then just dropped it. She wanted to, to touch us and look at us and just stayed at the top of the tank just looking at us for quite a long time before she ran out of energy and sank back to the bottom. And I was struck by how almost identical this was to a scene described years later in a book called Mama's Last Hug by Franz Duvall. And he described... An, an aging chimpanzee who was on her death nest and one of her old friends who she hadn't seen in years came to say goodbye to her. And there's video of this. And the sick, dying mama chimpanzee sees her friend, her, her face breaks out in a huge smile. She throws her arms around him. He embraces her. It is the most moving thing you ever saw. But I experience this identical thing in an octopus. It's really amazing. And yeah, I can hear how it moves you. And, uh, and certainly I've in your book can read how it, it certainly has touched your life and how each individual octopus has really left an impact and how, as you say, you've learned something from every one of them and had this really special bond. Um, and it's just so beautiful to hear. And I feel like we're privileged to hear that because it's not something that uh, too many humans would have had the, the privilege of having. So um, I really appreciate how open and uh, compassionate you've been and also really generous to share with us these personal experiences that you've had. Well, Amy, it's been such a joy talking with you, and thank you for sharing with me about Sparky and um, and the the pig that you met, and how you became a vegetarian, and and your really sensitive, wonderful, kind 
penetrating questions. Oh, thank you so much. You're starting to make me cry, so I'm going to have to finish it there before I start to tear up because it was really lovely to hear that um, that final story and how how you had that kind of closure and um, beautiful connection. So thank you so much for being so open and also so lovely. And uh, congratulations, I've got to say for all of the work you're doing because I do think that it is um, opening up this world to so many more people who wouldn't have that access and who might then be inspired to kind of follow what you're doing and to have their own experiences and connections with the different animals that they have access to in their lives. Yeah, that is exactly my hope. Right on. Yeah. I hope that does happen. And thank you, Cy. And I hope you do stay well and safe over there in America in this uh, really tough time with the pandemic. Yeah, thank you. Same to you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. I'm really, really pleased to get to bring back to the show a Uncommon Sense regular, Dr. Emma Shortus, and she's based at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT University, and Emma often joins me on this show to talk about American politics, and it is, in fact, as I discovered last night on Twitter, her first day back from maternity leave, so please join me in welcoming Emma back to the show and welcome back to the world of work, though I I don't think you ever really left. No, I, I sort of technically did, but yeah, I'm yeah. officially back today, which is exciting. Mentally on though. It's hard to turn off, isn't it? It is, yeah, especially in, in these particularly um, extraordinary times. Yeah, and it's also can be a little bit disheartening depending on the day and the news and the different press conference that may or may not have been aired yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a study in contrast. I think I was thinking about that with you know Daniel Andrews' press conference mm. yesterday, comparing it to Donald Trump's today. It is um, the subject. I think it will be the subject of many PhD theses. Yeah, <laughs> it's. <laughs> I worry for those people when they get to that point. <laughs> yeah, gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I do often have that thought as well, and maybe it's the history person in me and you that thinks about how society might look back on where we're at at the moment and what types of materials they'll find helpful to try and decipher what on earth was happening. And I know that we do have such a huge amount of what historians might call a primary source material and secondary sources, but gosh, I don't envy a person who wasn't born in these times who tries to understand the context with which we're operating in. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I don't envy historians of the future who will just, I think, as you say, be, be totally overwhelmed with, with sources and information. And, and also, I think, you know, a huge burden. Like, we've already seen really high-profile people talking about what historians of the future might might make of this as a kind of a, a way of trying to, I guess, trying to guilt people into into behaving better. Yeah. I saw, you know, John John Bremen, the, the former head of the CIA, saying that, history, this history will be written by the righteous, which I, mm. I thought was a really interesting way of putting it. But it, it is, it, I think it's both a really interesting exercise to think about how historians will be able to interpret this period, but also how we kind of project those, I, I guess, our needs and our desires for people to be better onto historians of the future yeah. rather than kind of focusing on the now. I know, yeah. It's like, don't embarrass us and make us look like we're all morally <laughs> 
corrupt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was a diverse, a diverse point and, and divergent views at the time. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I sure were. Yeah, not so many Republicans voting, though, um, with their actual votes in, for, say, the, the impeachment trials where we only saw one dissenting Republican. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's it's interesting, you know, to go back to that that idea of historians that Bill Bill Barr, who's the Attorney General, was mm. asked about what you know future historians would make of of Republicans and their behaviour, and p- particularly the Russian investigation. And his response was, "Well, history is written by the winners." So oh. you know, I don't think Republicans are particularly <laughs> worried about how history is going to or how historians are going to interpret their actions during this time. That is pretty amazing. Like. A perspective yeah. like that, that kind of, I don't care. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, it was a, it was a moment of, of profound honesty. Mm. He was reflecting on the fact that the Department of Justice is not going to prosecute Michael Flynn, who was um, Donald Trump's national security advisor, who who pled guilty to, to crimes. And, and he just kind of said, well, you know, we don't care. <laughs> we don't care what you think. We're going to do what we want. And, and so far, they, you know, he has been able to. They have been able to. Yeah, exactly. As as people may or may not recall, because it was a little while ago, he had pleaded guilty in December 2017 to lying to the FBI about his interactions during the presidential transition process with Sergei Kislyak Kislyak, um, at the time, which is was the Russian ambassador to the United States. And Trump ousted Flynn um, and really, you know, highlighted the fact that he had misled the vice president about that matter. And, um, and Flynn had pled guilty, as you said, and then tried to backtrack a bit later on and withdraw his plea in a hope to get out of it. It seems like he's been successful in his hopes. Yeah, look, it does. And, and Trump, as much as you're right that, that Trump fired him, Trump was really explicit at the time that he fired him because he'd lied to Mike Pence and he'd lied to the FBI, but remained consistent in his his belief that Flynn had actually done nothing wrong. He'd mm. lied and he hadn't needed to. And so it was always clear that, that Trump thought or Trump had always made clear that he thought Flynn was treated terribly, you know, as part of this narrative about witch the hunt. worst witch hunt in history. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, it's unsurprising. But I think what most people thought, including myself, was that Flynn would be charged, um, would be found guilty, and then Trump would pardon him, which is kind of, you know, I guess in normal times, for want of a better word, that's how it works. You know, a president has the power to pardon people like Michael Flynn, and Trump had given every indication that what he that's what he would do. What people were surprised by was the fact that the Department of Justice, which is supposed to be independent of the Office of the Presidency and emphasised supposed to be, mm. just decided not to pursue these charges. And and I think that's a different thing and that's what, what some people have been quite worried about when it comes to, you know, the idea of the rule of law and that, you know, people like Flynn will be ha- held accountable in some form. So that's kind of, again, something that is different about the Trump administration. And also, I think, you know, as we were discussing, the kind of the cavalier attitude of, of the Attorney General, who just said, well, no, we're not going to pursue charges because we think the entire Russia investigation was a hoax and, and you know, we don't care what you think. We're going to yeah. do what we want. 
Yeah. We're often in this moment of are we in a parallel universe? Was that real? Did that actually happen? And um, and it was interesting just looking at the news, particularly the Washington Post, where they've just recently reported that over 1,900 former Justice Department employees on Monday repeated a call for William Barr, the Attorney General, to step down, asserting in their open letter that he had, quote, once again assaulted the rule of law, unquote, by moving to drop that case against uh, Michael Flynn. And it wasn't just the usual suspects or the people you might think of as being in uh, Team Democrat or Team Anti-Trump. There were many who were on the conservative side or might have been seen to be at least friendly towards a conservative government. Um, People like Republican appointees Donald Ayer, who was a Deputy Attorney General under President George W. Bush, Charles Freed, a social general, a solicitor, solicitor general, sorry, under Ronald Reagan, Stuart Gerson, who led the Justice Department's civil division under Bush. So there are so many of these um, appointees from the Republican side who have put their name very publicly to an open letter, in some cases more than once, to denounce an individual, the Attorney General of the United States, and call out what they see as a very flagrant and obvious breach of the rule of law. What are your thoughts on on those kind of actions from, you know, the the unusual suspects? Yeah, look, I I think it it is interesting for for exactly the reason you say that it's the kind of austere conservative public servants who've served under, particularly under Republican presidents, but the kind of public servants who, who you know, will will serve under multiple administrations who kind of see their, uh, see themselves as having a higher duty to to justice and the rule of law in the United States. So for them, I think I think for that many of them to come out and sign this letter and, and use such strong terms such as the assault on the rule of law, which which this absolutely is, to be clear, mm. is is certainly significant. But I, I guess I would also say that we have seen this this kind of scenario play out multiple times um, during the, the Trump's tenure. We've seen it, for example, when Trump was appointing Brett, Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court amid, you know, enormous controversy. We saw letters signed by thousands and thousands of lawyers and academics um, condemning his appointment. And it hasn't, you know, it hasn't made a real difference. And mm. I think that's that's the thing that so many people are grappling with is is how to fight back against this administration and against that exactly as you say this assault on the rule of law by somebody like William Barr who who is it you know who who does not care is not interested in upholding the norms of the United States and and again that goes to things that we've spoken about before Amy about how so much of what Trump does is highlighting the fact that the United States political system is based on norms. It's based on expected standards of behaviour mm. and not enforceable laws. So there's really no recourse in ter- in terms of this action of Bill Barr to decline to charge Michael Flynn because people have just kind of, for 200 years, people have behaved in a certain way and now that's changed and nobody knows what to do about it. You know, And, and while the letter is important and, and politically significant, I'm, I'm not sure it's going to have any, any actual discernible impact. No, not based on past behaviour and and stated intention, as you've just mentioned there, with um, the Attorney-General's real uh, 
complete lack of interest in criticism and changing course, um, I was really particularly interested in uh, those elements or those um, other cases, the past cases that we have spoken about at length, which I, uh, we won't go into the detail of, but people like Michael Cohen, who was Trump's lawyer uh, for a number of years between 2006 to May 2018, I mean, he was convicted um, and, you know, punished and sent to jail. And um, there have been these instances where people have, you know, had, had the repercussions. Um, and as you said, people would expect some sort of special treatment um, from the president at some point or another. Um, and it was interesting to see a little bit of um, political gossip that I thought was funny to, to see that Rosie O'Donnell was working with Michael Cohen on writing a book, a tell-all book about Trump because we need another another tell-all book. It's probably going to be its own genre that has its own call number in a library one day. Um, but I was just, I was interested in that kind of, a facet, the fascination with Trump and this obsession with trying to understand his psyche and his motivations. Yeah, look, I, I think you raise a really interesting point there with Michael Cohen, because as you say, that is, you know, ostensibly that is kind of the rule of law playing out in that he, he did go to jail. But the, the key difference there is, is exactly as you were kind of alluding to, it's Trump's personality because Trump regards Michael Cohen as as a betrayer. He, he betrayed Trump. Trump expects um, 100% loyalty from all of the people who work for him. He doesn't return that loyalty, but he expects it. And so because Michael Cohen betrayed him, Trump was quite happy to discard him. And it's interesting that, you know, Cohen is working with Rosie O'Donnell, who is another of Trump's sworn enemies. <laughs> so it's interesting. I think they've kind of struck up that alliance. But you know, there, I think there is certainly a drive to, to understand Trump and all kinds of amazing speculation about, you know, the state of his mental health um, and things like that. And and I think, you know, as much as it's really important to to have those discussions, I think sometimes we we seek motivation or a kind of um, deeper understanding of those motivations where where Trump kind of tells us who he is and what's important to him pretty pretty often you know he's mm. on twitter all the time talking about witch hunts and you know that he's doing great and that that everything's fine that he's the greatest president in history and i think sometimes we try to ascribe a kind of deeper meaning to those things when actually yes. he just means what he says you know he he tells us who he is and and what he cares about and and maybe that's hard to process because what he doesn't care about or he doesn't seem to care about that much is you know 80,000 plus people dying he cares about the impact of that on his political fortunes and and on the fortunes of his friends and himself, but he doesn't care about the actual deaths. And that is, I th I think that is really emotionally that is really difficult to process. But that doesn't stop it from being true. Yeah, and well, it's so true when you're talking about uh, all this speculation about his motivations and his deeper thoughts and strategic plans, and you know there is this idea that there's another world that we're not truly getting access to and in some or in many cases he's very very blatant and sometimes not intentionally revealing just how black and white some of these situations are for him and an example that I find he's brought out many many times in these live press conferences that can often go up to an hour even sometimes longer with him just 
coming up with really random comments in response to journalist questions. And he was talking about testing and and he's been criticised a lot for the amount of testing and also the quality of testing that has been available to the average American, not to those who are privileged enough to definitely receive a test. Um, And he said something um, about this and it's been repeated in various iterations, but he said, quote, if we did very little testing, America wouldn't have the most cases. So in a way, by doing all of this testing, we make ourselves look bad. And then he says, um, I will tell you, you look at some cases and this is about, you know, the different states um, and the, the tensions there. Some people think they're doing it for politics. Here we go again. But they think they're doing it because it'll hurt me. The longer it takes to hurt me in the election, the longer it takes to open up the implication is the economy. And so he's basically saying, oh, the governors are resisting opening up their societies, their economies, because they want to damage me in the polls. They don't want me to win the 2020 presidential election because our economy being good, our stock market being um, vibrant, is my main centrepiece platform for re-election. Yeah, look, I, I think you're absolutely right. He, he's made that clear from the start that the, he sees the economy and, I mean, not even necessarily the entire economy, but the fortunes of the stock market. Mm. You know, that's how he kind of measures economic performance. He sees his political fortunes as entirely tied up in that. It's where he's he believes that his credibility lies. You know, he's been a frequent um, critic of Barack Obama and previous administrations for things like uh, trade relationships and free trade trade and the kind of economic destruction that came with that. So he's tied his political fortunes to that. And when you combine that, I think, with the the kind of narcissism of Trump where, where as you were just saying, you know, everything is about him and people are doing things to attack him, you know, they're not reopening their states because it will hurt him in the 2020 election. That is that is a toxic combination, you know, and it and it's it's obvious that he cannot see or ascribe any other motivations to anybody else because that what his world revolves around on. So he just kind of expects that that's what everyone else's world revolves around as well. And it means that he is just, I think, utterly incapable of dealing with a disaster of, of this magnitude. Yeah. And I mean, the the point is, it isn't actually all about him. Um, it's actually about all the Americans contracting coronavirus and those who are dying, uh, and particularly those in the African-American and Hispanic communities that are dying at a much higher rate than um, those in the white communities in America. That's right. Yeah, the, the, the racial divide in, in deaths in particular is is quite horrifying. And, and I think it's really it's really difficult to convey the, the sheer magnitude of this crisis and and I, I guess what brought it home for, for me is going back to to where I lived for for a while in in New Haven which is a pretty small town by American standards about the size of Geelong and um, 700 people have died in New Haven at, at, as of last count so imagine you know 700 people dying in Geelong mm. within a, a matter of months now of course New, New Haven is a, a a kind of quintessential American town in that is it is the inequality gap is massive. So those 700 people who are dying are not the Yale professors who who are, you know, immensely privileged living in that kind of um, Ivy League college bubble. They're the people who live outside it. They're the people who are living in nursing homes and they're the non-white people who, who basically service that college industry. So I think that is 
you know, for me, I, that that really I think sort of conveyed the, the gravity of this situation, and that, that that is writ large in other states, in places like Georgia, in places like Louisiana, where the death toll is overwhelmingly in proportionally in African American communities. And again, mm. you know, that's part of the reason why Trump is is kind of failing to care, and why you see protests against lockdown that are dominated by white people who are angry that service industries overwhelmingly staffed by non-white people are closed. Yeah. That's just the sad, um, the devastating reality of it. Exactly. Yeah. And there was a study that just recently came out um, and that showed, and it was looking at 27,000 patients from seven different states who were presenting to hospital with COVID-19 symptoms. And they um, showed that basically that black patients were six times less likely to get treatment or even testing than white patients. So there is also that, um, that very basic disparity even in um, healthcare and also in this conscious and unconscious bias, a racial bias that exists in America that we're always so often drawn to, drawn to and our attention is, is brought to that kind of issue. But um, I think it's so real because it's, um, it's really impacting upon people in a life and death situation, which, of course, we've seen that in Black Lives Matters and um, gun violence over in America, but it's becoming even more visible to everyone with this uh, pandemic, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think what COVID-19 has done is really expose those those deep structural inequalities that already existed and, of course, people were already well aware of, but they just kind of make them all the more obvious. So it is things, as you say, like the the kind of structural racism that means black communities are less likely to have healthcare in the first place. They're much more likely to have um, comorbidities, you know, to have existing conditions that make this virus much more risky um, when they contract it. And they're also much more likely to work in industries that are are more exposed, you know, to work in places like Amazon warehouses or or meatpacking industries. to work in meatpacking, which we know uh, are industries that are, that are much more over overexposed to the virus. And so all of those things compound, combined with an economic downturn where people are losing their jobs, which in America means losing your health care as well, so that those disadvantages, disadvantaged communities are afraid to go to hospital because that can mean bankruptcy. So mm. all of these things kind of compound to make this crisis, I think, so much worse, combined with, you know, absolute political ineptitude at the top, which is why we see the United States, you know, leading the death toll now in the world by by upwards of 60,000 people. Yeah, and it is really shocking uh, to watch, but also to think that perhaps they're not quite capturing what's actually happening over there and that perhaps the situation could actually be worse than the numbers that we are seeing because, as we know, the testing and the testing types are variable and they do um, return false negatives and false positives and in some cases are not as rigorous as Australia's have been. And as Peter Doherty um, mentioned on Twitter, he was talking and comparing Australia's testing uh, kits with America's and um, and saying that there were some very significant differences between some of them and the quality. Um, one of the things that this uh, pandemic and crisis has highlighted is where leadership 
isn't lacking. And that is an example like uh, Governor Cuomo from New York, who, I mean, it is kind of mesmerising to watch his press conferences and to see his his PowerPoint slides um, because he's speaking in plain English. He's saying, people ask me what I know, what I think, what I what I perceive our issues to be. And he said, well, what I think is only what I know and what I know are what the facts are. And then he goes through and takes everyone through what the known facts are of situations, including that racial disparity, which he said, you know, he'll bring um, policies to bear on that issue. But also he brought up very recently, and it has been reported in the UK as well, a Kawasaki-like inflammatory syndrome which has really revealed itself in New York with 73 children having um, reported this uh, hyperinflammation in their blood vessels and in other organs in their body um, in response to, in many cases, a COVID-19 infection, either a, a current infection or that they have antibodies to that infection. But they don't necessarily have those respiratory symptoms that everyone's been on the lookout for. And so it's kind of been a bit of a curveball that uh, that places like London and places like New York, which are really medical centres of the world, are now picking up and um, seeking to get a handle on. And we've seen just in the last few hours, more and more states over in America report children with these um, Kawasaki-like syndromes in Louisiana, Mississippi, Delaware, Pennsylvania, Washington State, Massachusetts, Illinois, California, um, Michigan, Connecticut, Kentucky. So these are all, um, you know, states starting to catch on to something. And it, I guess, highlighted to me how little we really understand what some of the effects of the virus are on people, let alone on children, and let alone also what um, might be the effects longer term, like immunity, like how people might be left with residual symptoms if they had a very severe disease. And I wondered, you know, when we see these kind of unknown, um, scary things like Governor Cuomo saying, you know, we didn't expect we'd have to worry about our kids, you know, we we get that kind of leadership that we're looking for that thankfully Victoria has had as well. And I wonder whether you have seen the impact of that or have been observing that kind of impact of the, the straight down the line, factual, um, but also treating people like humans with dignity, with intelligence and um, levelling with them. Yeah, look, I- I think Cuomo has, you know, I think the general consensus is that he has has risen to the occasion, even if, you know, I guess New York was kind of late in realising the potential scale of this disaster. I, I guess I'd say, you know, it's kind of it's kind of an indictment of our political system that we are so impressed by leaders who are just Doing able their to job. convey information, you know, who yeah. can just give us facts and just say this is what's happening. And But also to say, quite honestly, we don't know. You know, we we mm. don't understand entirely what's happening, but we are doing our best. You know, we're working with the best models, we're the best experts and doing whatever we can and we have to be cautious. That that is our kind of base level of, of political competence competency is is kind of scary Mm. but also I think it is it is really heartening you know I am I am so profoundly grateful that we live in Victoria having you know watching the U.S. so closely it it just does remind you that so much of life is just the luck of where you are born um 
So I think that, you know, there it will take time really to process the the impact that leadership failure has had on this crisis. You know, when you when you talk about the impact that this virus is having on children in New York and then you go back and think about places like the UK and the US that were kind of openly considering a, a herd immunity approach mm. just to imagine what kind of disaster that could have been, you know, if you can possibly imagine this being even worse. So this is a this is a disaster that would test, you know, we have to be honest, you know, it, it would test even the most competent of it administrations, even the, you know, the best president you've ever seen, this is a, a, a disaster that, as you say, you know, keeps throwing these extraordinary curveballs. And so dealing with it is incredibly difficult. But when you have an administration that is in such chaos as this, even leaders like, like Cuomo are kind of bound by that because of, you know, the powers that they have as a state. And when you have the president, you know, refusing to wear a mask and the vice president refusing to wear a mask because it might look bad and it might kind of conflict with their narrative about wanting to open up the economy, you know, those leaders, even those competent and and effective leaders are are still hamstrung. And and for me, that is the scary thing, I I think, especially watching the United States. Yeah, exactly. Um, Emma, just finally, there's been some testy exchanges between Trump and the media, and that's been another issue of trying to get to the right information. And often he will kind of just spew out the wrong information in some cases, um, which is kind of unhelpful. And we have also seen, um, I should mention, the White House having some positive coronavirus cases in recent times. So that's kind of thrown a spanner in the works in the in the Oval Office and the White House kind of office environment. So maybe uh, tensions are high. But I did see that um, one great reporter, and there are many, but I, I have noticed that a lot of them are women, um, Wei Jia Zhang, who is a correspondent for CBS News um, and is based over there in the White House doing that job, was asking why the president keeps on comparing America to countries like China and and even other countries like South Korea and the fact that, um, you know, how much they're testing, how high their test results are. Why, she said, why is this a global competition to you if everyday Americans are still losing their lives and we're still seeing more cases? Why does it matter that we're testing better than everyone else? And um, Trump basically suggested... uh, Maybe that is a question you should ask China. Don't ask me. Ask China that question um, and really just shut it down and and kind of, I guess, chucked a bit of a tantrum. And I was interested in that that dynamic that the media is still having with the president and also that women and men, but, you know, women are probably getting the backlash more from Trump about saying that they're nasty and that they're asking nasty questions. Um, What are your thoughts just finally on, on that dynamic that's still ever present? Yeah, it is. And and it's very on brand for Trump, I think, to be particularly enraged by women uh, challenging him and, and asking him questions. You're right that after that question, he did, he, he cracked it and, and left the press conference. But he does have this, um, it, it seems like this insatiable de- desire for media coverage. You know, he's talked mm. about those press conferences and the great ratings that he gets all of those channels. So he wants media attention desperately. He wants that coverage. You know, he talks all the time about how much he hates the New York Times and the Washington Post. But underneath that, I think, is a a desire, a deep desire for them to cover him positively, you know, for them to talk about how good he is. And and that's connected, I think, to to what you were saying earlier about, you know, him wanting the United States to be the best in the world. You know, that's not 
Trump, just Trump. That's a deep-seated American desire, I yeah. think, and an inherent belief that, that the United States is the best country in the world, you know, in, in the face of all evidence to the contrary. Trump was even saying the other day that um, Angela Merkel in Germany was was commending the United States for their tremendous response, you know, that's been better even than Germany, um, which, again, you know, is, is Trump <laughs> just, really just funny. making stuff up. It is, you know. It's, it's so not true. It's extraordinary. No, it's not even close to true. Yeah. Um, but he is, you know, he's a master of, of – that kind of media coverage of saying things like that and, and having it reported even when it's not true and getting the attention he so craves. But mm. but it'll be interesting to see, you know, if he continues these press conferences, which, you know, he seems unable to be able to stop because he just loves the attention so much. And, and it is, you know, it's worth reflecting on all the time how, you know, even being president of the most powerful country in the world is not enough attention for this man. No. Yeah, it just seems like nothing will ever be enough, which is scary. It is. Thankfully, thankfully, that's not um, the mindset of all human beings. Otherwise, maybe we would retreat into animal yeah. worlds more fully. <laughs> Thank you so much, Emma, for chatting with us. And it's been really lovely to, to speak with you and delve more deeply into this. And I do appreciate the time you've taken to keep abreast of these issues and um, report back on, on the detail over there. It is pretty chaotic. And, um, yeah, thank you again for joining us today. Oh, that's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.